0: Hello, and welcome to day 28 of A Miserable Year. I'm Anthony Adler, and I'm going to read the whole of Victor Hugo's Le Miserable over the course of 2018. That's the podcast, and as we're about to start book three of the first volume of Le Miserable, I thought I'd do a recap. It's a good opportunity to say a few thank yous as well. Caroline Radnovsky, Kathy Fitzgerald, and the strange and charmed crew who helped develop the idea. Todd Davidson, Helen Gregory, Helen Lockett, Tianyin Xu, and Ali Walker for moral support. Arlie Adlington of The Boy Who Hasn't Lived podcast, Katie Byford, my editor at Thorn, Elizabeth Minkle of the podcast Fansplaining, and Will Tyus of Mina's Ghost, for advice. Caroline Radnowsky again, for the microphone and an editing tutorial, and expert advice about pronunciation. Toby Newcomb for my tutorial and post-production, Harry Harris, who made our wonderful theme music, my sister, Debs Adler, who our equally wonderful artwork, and Lauren Gilbert, extraordinary services to spreadsheets. I'd also like to thank Victor Hugo for writing the book in the first place, Isabel F. Hapgood, whose magisterial unabridged translation from the 1880s I've been working from, and David Bellos, whose book about the Miserables, the novel of the century, inspired this podcast in the first place. And thank you, if you're listening. Now, the recap. As you'll learn pretty quickly from the title of the section, we've reached the year 1817, which means that two years have passed since the end of Book 2. In those first two books, we are introduced to two men whose lives, up until the point they met, couldn't have been more different. The first was Muriel Bienvenu, the Bishop of Dean. The Bishop had grown up with the great privilege of an aristocrat, but after the loss of his young wife to disease and his social world to the tumult of the Revolution, he became a priest. Plucked late in life from an obscure royal curacy by the Emperor Napoleon himself, he lived a blameless and exemplary life of charity and kindness with his sister, Mademoiselle Baptistine, and his housekeeper, Madame Megloir, both of whom resigned themselves to this habit of giving away all the comfort and perquisites of a bishop's life, except a silver dinner service and a pair of silver candlesticks, which were the only worldly luxury that he retained. He's known throughout his bishopric as Monseigneur Welcome, and the door to his modest house is always left unlocked. The biography of Jean Valjean, who we didn't meet until the 15th chapter of Les Miserables, is quite a contrast. He was a tree pruner in Favarol as a young man, and the sole earner supporting his widowed sister and her seven little children. After being unable to find work, he stole a loaf of bread for his family, and was sentenced to this crime for five years in the galleys of Toulon. This already harsh sentence was extended each time he tried to escape, and it was only after nineteen years that he finally regained his freedom. The Jean Valjean who emerged from incarceration was immensely strong, an excellent climber, and profoundly aggrieved at the way society had treated him. His release from prison didn't end his persecution, though. Turned away from every public house in dean, he prepares to sleep outside before being pointed towards the house of Monsignor Welcome. Despite the bishop's respect and hospitality, Valjean steals his silverware and attempts to flee the city, before being returned to the bishop by the gendarmerie. the bishop breaks the cycle, and gives Valjean not only his valuable cutlery, but his silver candlesticks as well, telling him that by taking the gift, Valjean has promised to become an honest man. You no longer belong to evil, the bishop tells him, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. We leave Valjean at the end of Book Two, knelt in a paroxysm of feeling by the House of Monsignor Welcome. Stay with us, and you'll learn what happens next. Les Misérables, Volume One, Fontaine, Book the Third, in the year 1817. Chapter One. The year 1817. 1817 is the year which Louis the Eighteenth, with a certain royal assurance which was not wanting in pride, entitled the twenty-second of his reign. It is the year in which Monsieur Brunier de Sausson was celebrated. All the hairdresser's shops hoping for powder and the return of the royal bird, were besmeared with azure and decked with fleur-de-lis. It was the candid time at which Count Lynch sat every Sunday as churchwarden in the churchwarden's pew of Saint-Germain-de-Pres, in his costume of a peer of France, with his red ribbon and his long nose, and the majesty of profile peculiar to a man who has performed a brilliant action. The brilliant action performed by Monsieur Lynch was this, being mayor of Bordeaux on the 12th of March 1814, he had surrendered the city a little too promptly to Monsieur the Duc d'Anglaine, hence his peerage. In 1817, fashions followed up little boys of from four to six years of age in vast caps of Morocco leather with ear taps resembling Eskimo miters. The French army was dressed in white after the mode of the Austrian. The regiments were called legions. Instead of numbers, they bore the names of departments. Napoleon was at Saint Helena, and since England refused him green cloth, he was having his old coats turned. In 1817, Pellegrini sang. Mademoiselle Bigottini danced. Potier reigned. Audrey did not yet exist. Madame Sacqui had succeeded to Furioso. There were still Prussians in France. Monsieur Delatote was a personage. Legitimacy had just asserted itself by cutting off the hand, then the head, of Plenier, of Carbonneau, and of Toleron. The Prince de Talleyrand, Grand Chamberlain and the Abbe Louis, appointed Minister of Finance, laughed as they looked at each other with the laugh of the two augurs. Both of them had celebrated on the 14th of July, 1790, the Mass Federation of the Champ de mars Talleyrand had said it as bishop. Louis had served it in the capacity of deacon. In 1817, in the side alleys of the same Champ de two great cylinders of wood might have been seen lying in the rain, rotting amid the grass painted blue, with traces of eagles and bees from which the gilding was fallen. These were the columns which two years before had upheld the Emperor's platform in the Champ de May. They were blackened here and there with the scorches of the bivouac of Austrians encamped at gros Two or three of these columns had disappeared in these bivouac fires, and had warmed the large hands of the Imperial troops. The Field of May had this remarkable point, that it had been held in the month of June and in the Field of March, Mar. In this year, 1817, two things were popular, the Voltaire Touquet and the Snuffbox à la Charter. The most recent Parisian sensation was the crime of Duton, who had thrown his brother's head into the fountain of the flower market. They had begun to feel anxious at the naval department, on account of the lack of news from that fatal frigate, the Medusa, which was destined to cover Chomere with infamy and Guéricho with glory. Colonel Selv was going to Egypt to become Solomon Pasha, the Palace of Thermes in the Rue de la Harpe, served as a shop for a cooper. On the platform of the octagonal tower of the Hotel de Cluny, a little shed of boards which had served as an observatory to Messier, the naval astronomer under Louis XVI, was still to be seen. The Duchess de Girard read to three or four friends her unpublished Eureka in her boudoir furnished by X in sky-blue satin. The ends were scratched off the Louvre. The Bridge of Austerlitz had abdicated, and was entitled The Bridge of the King's Garden, Le Jardin de Roy, a double enigma, which disguised the bridge of Ostelots and the Jardin de Plant at one stroke. Louis the Eighteenth, much preoccupied while annotating. Louis the Eighteenth, much preoccupied while annotating Horace with the corner of his fingernail. Heroes who have become emperors and makers of wooden shoes who have become Dauphin, had two anxieties: Napoleon, and maturin Bruno. The French Academy had given for its prize subject the happiness procured through study. Monsieur Ballard was officially eloquent. In his shadow could be seen germinating that future Advocate-General of Bruy, dedicated to the sarcasms of poor Louis Courrier. There was a false Chateaubriand named Marchingue in the interim, until there should be a false Marchingue named Darlingcourt. Claire Dolbe and Malagadelle are masterpieces. Madame Cotton was proclaimed the chief writer of the epoch. The Institute had the academician, Napoleon Bonaparte stricken from its list of members a royal ordinance erected anglem into a naval school for the duke d'anglem being lord high admiral it was evident the city of anglem had all the qualities of a seaport otherwise the monarchical principle would have received a wound in the council of ministers the question was agitated whether vignettes representing slack rope performances which adorned franconi's advertising posters and which attracted throngs of street urchins should be tolerated Monsieur Payet, the author of Agnès, a good sort of fellow, with a square face and a wart on his cheek, directed the little private concerts of the Marquise de Sassanay in the Rue Ville-Lévesque. All the young girls were singing The Hermit of Saint-Aval, with words by Evan Giraud. The Yellow Dwarf was transferred into mirror. The Café Lomblin stood up for the Emperor, against the Café Valois, which upheld the Bourbons, the Duke de Berry, already surveyed from the shadow by Louvel, had just been married to a princess of Sicily. Madame de Stael had died a year previously. The bodyguard hissed at Mademoiselle Mars. The newspapers were all very small. Their form was restricted, but their liberty was great. The Constitutionnel was constitutional. La Minerve called Chateaubriand Chateaubriand. That tea made the good middle-class people laugh heartily at the expense of the great writer, In journals which sold themselves, prostituted journalists insulted the exiles of 1815. David had no longer any talent. Arnaud had no longer any wit. Carnot was no longer honest. Soult had won no battles. It is true that Napoleon had no longer any genius. No one is ignorant of the fact that letters sent to an exile by post very rarely reached him, as the police made it their religious duty to intercept them. This is no new fact. Descartes complained of it in his exile. Now, David, having in a Belgian publication shown some displeasure at not having received letters which had been written to him, it struck the royalist journals as amusing, and they derided the prescribed man well on this occasion. What separated two men more than an abyss was to say the regicides, or to say the voters, to say the enemies, or to say the allies, to say Napoleon or to say Bonaparte. All sensible people were agreed that the era of revolution had been closed forever by King Louis XVIII, surnamed the immortal author of the Charter. On the platform of the Pont Neuf, the word Redivivus was carved on the pedestal that awaited the statue of Henry the Fourth. Monsieur Pierre, in the Rue Thérèse, number 4, was making a rough draft of his privy assembly to consolidate the monarchy. The leaders of the right said at grave junctures, we must write to Messieurs Canwell, Canuel, Omani and Echapadelaine were preparing the sketch, to some extent with monsieur's approval, of what was to become, later on, the conspiracy of the Bord de l'eau, of the waterside. La Pingoule Noire was already plotting in his own quarter. De la Vaderie was conferring with Trogoff. Monsieur Dacaz, who was liberal to a degree, reigned. Chateaubriand stood every morning at his window in number no. 27, Rue Saint-Dominique, clad in footed trousers and slippers, with a Madras kerchief knotted over his grey hair. With his eyes fixed on a mirror, a complete set of dentist's instruments spread out before him, cleaning his teeth, which were charming, while he dictated the monarchy according to the charter to Monsieur Pelage, his secretary. Criticism, assuming an authoritative tone, Preferred Lafont to Talma. Monsieur de Felateres signed himself A. Monsieur Hoffman sent himself Z. Charles Nodier wrote Therese Aubert. Divorce was abolished. Lyceums called themselves colleges. The collegians, decorated on the collar with a golden fleur de lis, fought each other apropos of the King of Rome. The counter police of the chateau had denounced to Her Royal Highness Madame the portrait, everywhere exhibited, of Monsieur the Duc d'Orléans, who made a better appearance in his uniform of Colonel General of the Hussars, than Monsieur the Duc de Berry in his uniform of Colonel General of Dragoons, a serious inconvenience. The city of Paris was having the dome of the Invalides, the city of Paris was having the dome of the Inverleeds regilded at its own expense. Serious men asked themselves what Monsieur de Troncolargue would do on such and such an occasion. M. Clausel de Montal differed on diverse points from M. Clausel de Coussage. M. de Salbury was not satisfied. The comedian Picard, who belonged to the Academy, which the comedian Molière had not been able to do, had the two filberts played at the Odeon, upon whose pediment the removal of the letters still allowed Theatre of the Empress to be plainly read. People took part for or against Cugnier de Montalot, Fabvier was factious. Bavot was revolutionary. The liberal, Pellessier, published an edition of Voltaire with the following title, Works of Voltaire, of the French Academy. That will attract purchasers, said the ingenious editor. The general opinion was that Monsieur Charles Loisson would be the genius of the century. Envy was beginning to gnaw at him, a sign of glory and this verse was composed on him. Even when Loyssen steals, one feels that he has pause. As Cardinal Fesch refused to resign, Monsieur Dupont, Archbishop of administrator administered the Diocese of Lyon. The quarrel over the Valley of Dap was begun between Switzerland and France by a memoir from Captain, afterwards General Dufour. Saint-Simon, ignored, was erecting his sublime dream. There was a celebrated Fourier at the Academy of Science whom posterity has forgotten, and in some garret, an obscure Fourier whom the future will recall. There was a celebrated Fourier at the Academy of Science whom posterity has forgotten, and in some garret, an obscure Fourier whom the future will recall. Lord Byron was beginning to make his mark. A note to a poem by Voy introduced him to France in these terms. A certain Lord Baron. David d'Angeur was trying to work in marble. Abbe Caron was speaking, in terms of praise, to a private gathering of seminarists in the blind alley of Fulotin, of an unknown priest, named Félicité Robert, who at a later date became Lamennais. A thing which smoked and clattered on the seine, with the noise of a swimming dog, went and came beneath the windows of the Tuileries, from the Pont Royal to the Point Louis XV. It was a piece of mechanism which was not good for much, a sort of plaything, the idle dream of a dream-ridden inventor, a utopia, a steamboat. The Parisians stared indifferently at this useless thing. Monsieur de Veblanc, the reformer of the Institute by a coup d'etat, the distinguished author of numerous academicians, ordinances, and batches of members, after having created them, could not succeed in becoming one himself. The Faubourg Saint-Germain and the Pavilion de Mossad wished to have Monsieur de la Vue for prefect of police, on account of his piety. Dupitron and Racamier entered into a quarrel in the amphitheatre of the School of Medicine, and threatened each other with their fists on the subject of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Cuvier, with one eye on Genesis and the other on nature, tried to please bigoted reaction by reconciling fossils with texts, and making Mastodons flatter Moses. Monsieur Francois de Neuchateau, the praiseworthy cultivator of the memory of Parmentier made a thousand efforts to have pomme de terre, potato, pronounced Parmentier, and succeeded therein not at all. The Abbé Gregoire, ex-bishop, ex-conventionary, ex-senator, had passed in the royal polemics to the state of infamous Gregoire. The locution of which we have made use, passed to the state of, has been condemned as a neologism by Monsieur Royer Collard. Under the third arch of the Pont de Gena, the new stone with which, the two years previously, the mining aperture made by Blucher to blow up the bridge had been stopped up, was still recognisable on account of its whiteness. Justice summoned to its bar a man who, on seeing the Comte d'Artois and Notre Dame, had said aloud, Sapristi! I regret the time when I saw Bonaparte and Talma and their Belle Sauvage arm in arm. A seditious utterance. Six months in prison. Traitors showed themselves unbuttoned. Men who had gone over to the enemy on the eve of battle made no secret of their recompense, and strutted immodestly in the light of day, in the cynicism of riches and dignities. Deserters from Ligny and Quatrebras, in the brazenness of their well-paid turpitude, exhibited their devotion to the monarchy in the most bare-faced manner. This is what floats up confusedly, pell-mell, for the year 1817, and is now forgotten. History neglects nearly all these particulars, and cannot do otherwise. The infinity would overwhelm it. Nevertheless, these details, which are wrongly called trivial, there are no trivial facts in humanity, nor little leaves in vegetation, are useful. It is of the physiognomy of the years that the physiognomy of the centuries is composed. In this year of 1817, four young Parisians arranged a fine farce.